right, guys. Um, today we have, I, I am, I, I, I'm really nervous this morning. Um, I'm, we are going to attempt to go through all of chapter 7 of Hebrews today. And I want to I set us up, before we, we do that, um, I want to set us up with a couple things. You know, first of all, let everyone say word picture. Okay, about a third of us said it. One more time, word picture. Great, yes. Okay, so keep, will you keep that phrase kind of in your mind today? You see often when Jesus would be teaching his disciples, he would use word pictures, parables, basically, right? So what, he, what would he do? He'd be walking with his disciples from maybe somewhere to somewhere else, and they're on a road, and then, you know, he would see a field. I'm sure there were a lot of fields uh, when Jesus was walking, maybe like into Samaria. He's walking to Samaria, and there's fields around, and he goes, hey, disciples, um, did you know that the kingdom of heaven is like a field? The kingdom of heaven is like a field where a man knew that there was a treasure buried in that field, and because he was the only one who knew about it, he saved up all his money and he gave everything he had because he knew the worth of the treasure in that field was more than any he had, but no one knew. So he saved it up and he bought the field so that he could get this treasure out of it, right? And so they're all, oh, I get it. It's like this worship. By, by the way, in this field, have you noticed how there's a farmer who probably owns this field? And this farmer, what he does is he has both sheep and he sows crops. And let me tell you a couple things about that, right? Um, in, in the sheep area, the kingdom of heaven is like, sh- like a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. He had a hundred. And one of them got lost and it got all confused and it started looking and like just wandered off. And this shepherd is so good that he left 99 of his sheep that were safe in this field. But he goes after that one sheep and he goes and he retrieves it because he loves the lost sheep and he brings them back. And the kingdom of heaven is not just like that. It's also speaking of a farmer. Look, did you notice how these rows of corn or wheat, I don't think they had corn, right? They did wheat, right? Sorry. Uh, did you notice how there's wheat? And what a farmer will do is he'll, he'll reach in his pouch and he'll scatter seeds. And some of the seed will fall on rocky soil. Some of them fall on hard soil. Some of them fall on thorny soil. But the good seed will find good soil. And what will happen is... It'll be the perfect circumstances where God will orchestrate this thing in our hearts and it'll, it'll take deep root and bear fruit into our lives. And so you see Jesus over and over using word pictures. You also see it in the Old Testament with the prophets, right? Um, so there's a, a guy named Hosea. And God says, okay, Hosea, I want your life to be a word picture to the nation of Israel. So I want you to marry a prostitute. And Hosea's like, what? What'd you say? Yes, you heard me right. You're going to marry a prostitute and you're going to love her and you're going to provide for her and you're going to give her everything that a husband is due to give it to his wife. But she's going to be unfaithful to you even in your faithfulness to her. And this will be a picture of how the nation of Israel is living unfaithful to me, but I as God am going to be faithful to you no matter what you do to me word picture. One of the better ones is Isaiah. Isaiah, God says, hey, Isaiah, for two years, you're going to run around naked. Ooh, how, how much, like, how, who wants to open up a 501c3 and say, that's going to be my ministry. I'm going to have the naked ministry, right? Why does God tell Isaiah to run around Israel naked? Because it's a revelation. It's a word picture of the desolation of Israel, of this, like, depravity of who they are, 
that they, they need, but they don't even understand that they need, and so they just walk around as if this is okay. Even marriage, right? Marriage is a word picture. Marianne and I, we love each other. We didn't just get married just to be selfish for ourselves. We got married because our marriage, the way we love one another, the way we sacrifice for one another, the way we submit to one another, the way I lead, all of those things are a picture of what? Of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A word picture, just how like Jesus pursues us. Jesus is a servant leader, and he leads us. And we as his church, what do we do? We submit and we follow, even in marriage. So what we're going to do today is we're going to take a very wordy portion of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 7. It's almost like, if you were to just read through this, it's almost like someone handed you a lawyer contract and you're reading through all these clauses, and you're like, wait a minute, this is like in Latin. I don't even understand. Like, what is this? And so we're going to try to go through this, and it's going to be a little different today. Normally what we do is we read through the portion of Scripture, and then we kind of, how many no, uh, points do we go through? Three points, right? That's just, but today's going to be a little different. What we're going to do is we're going to open up the Scriptures. We're going to read them verse by verse, and every once in a while we're going to stop and go, okay, what in the heck does that mean, right? And so then we're going to say, okay, let's try to explain that. And then in that moment, once we explain, go, oh, okay, then we're going to try to apply it to our lives, okay? You guys ready? Okay, so when everyone say word picture. Good job. Okay, so how are we going to address Hebrews chapter 7 as a? So there's going to be this guy named Melchizedek. Don't freak out. That's a weird name, right? It is a weird name. And what we're going to do is we're going to see how God, in his infinite wisdom, is going to help us use the person of Melchizedek as a word picture. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 7, and here we go. Starting in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Let's just pause there for a moment. Now, um, if, you, if you know anything here, this understanding of blessing, what we see here, when you were to be blessed, especially in the Old Testament, would often include bread and wine, Okay. We have bread and wine. So here we have Abraham coming to a guy named Melchizedek, and Abraham is being blessed by Melchizedek with probably bread and wine. Now, if you know anything about word pictures and how the Bible often uses bread and wine, bread is like sustenance, right? It's, it's uh, something that gives us energy. It gives us comfort. So, and then wine, we know, is usually, we see in the picture in the Bible, is joy and life. So here we have Abraham coming to Melchizedek, being blessed with sustenance and life. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 2. And to him, Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. Just stop there for a second again, all right? You guys doing Okay. Hold on. So now we have Abraham coming to Melchizedek, being blessed by him, giving him a tenth. This is where we get the word tithe from in the church. Tithe means tenth. Now, this is different than the way that you and I as American Christians understand tithing. If you've been in the church for any part, period of time, you know, Tim just encouraged us this morning about giving, you, we, we sometimes 
view giving as this like a duty we have to do. We have to give 10%. It's my just duty as a Christian. If I call myself part of this church, part of the membership, then what I do is I tithe 10%. This is not the way that Abraham thought of this. This was an understanding of that everything I have, I'm going to surrender that. It was a gesture. It was an action of saying, hey, everything that I have, I'm just going to make it completely available to you. Does that make sense? By tithing. And so what he's saying is it's, it's, it's a gesture by him saying, okay, I just won all of these spoils from this war, but I'm going to give a tenth, which I don't even have to do to this person, and I'm going to do it as a show to say that this is not really mine. It's all God's anyway, okay? By the way, a little caveat here. I don't know if you noticed this, but Abraham is tithing pre-law, okay? So for those of us who say, I don't tithe because uh, tithing's under the law, and so I'm not under the law anymore. I'm under grace. Well, you could just put this into your pipe and smoke it this morning, all right? That was the little free caveat this morning, all right? Where are we? Um, okay, look at verse 4. We're just going to skip down. We're going to come back to verse 3 in a second, but I, I feel like I want to tie these together. Verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Everyone say patriarch. Okay, now, this would have blown your Jewish mind to hear this written in the book of Hebrews chapter 7, that a patriarch would give anything to anybody. This would have been so contrary to what the patriarch did. So let's, let's just for a moment pretend Michael Bryan is the patriarch of Southlands Chino. I mean, that feels appropriate, doesn't it? He's got the white hair. I'm trying as hard as I can, but he's got it. And so when, if Mike asks us to do something, what do we do? We do it, right? Because it's Mike. I mean, this guy, he's led churches for 30 years. He's been a leader. He knows everything. Why shouldn't he? So if Mike says something, man, we want to honor him. Nowhere do we think that Mike should grovel at us and say, hey, can, can I get this from you? And so what we see here is this, this would have blown the mind of a Jewish reader that the patriarch, let alone Abraham, the founder of our faith, would subject himself to anybody, we always should go, what? Now, remember word picture. Let's sum it up here. Go back to verses 3. And this is where we really have to come to wait or come to understand this understanding that Melchizedek is a word picture for us here. Verse 3, he is without father. Speaking of Melchizedek, uh, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I messed up. Okay, give me a second. Let's go back to verse 2. I told you this was going to be a little, little weird today. And to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. Here it is. He is first by translation of his name, what? King of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. This is speaking of Melchizedek. Now don't freak out here. Hold on, hold on. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, some of you might be going, what in the world? I knew that the Old Testament had some stuff in there, speaking of 
Melchizedek like, talks about Nephilim, right? And these, these giants, and like, we get all caught up in this stuff. The, what the writer of Hebrews is doing here, he's not trying to get us to go, what, who is this Melchizedek? Was he, like, I know there's God the Father, there's God the Son, God the Spirit. Is there God the Melchizedek? Like, what is happening here? No. See, this is what theologians call, get a little nerdy here with me a moment, speaking from silence. Now, remember how I said word picture? You guys okay, right, so far? You guys track, some of you are like, I don't know, keep talking. You're going to have to convince me. All right, I'm trying. I'm trying my best. This is a tough scripture. So, Melchizedek, the why the Bible is describing who Melchizedek is, is because it's pointing, making for us a word picture of a better way and system of understanding how to get to God. And he's going to say Melchizedek was a foreshadow of Jesus. All right, we got that. Now, why describe him the way he was? Well, the Old Testament, the only time you see a picture of Melchizedek is with interaction with Abraham. You see him talked about once in the book of Psalms, and then guess what? That's it. Who's this guy? So when the writer of Hebrews is saying he doesn't have a beginning or an end, a mother or father, it's not saying literally that he does not have a beginning or end or mother or father. He's saying that the writer... It's almost as if the Bible did this on purpose. The things that it doesn't include about him, about having no beginning, no end, it's almost as if he's going to be living forever. Who else do we know is a priest forever for us? Maybe somebody named who? Jesus. Word picture. So if we can sum up verses 1 through 3 here. We only got through 1 through 3 so far. 1 through 3. This is what we should see as a word picture. There's a king of righteousness. There is a king of peace who wants to bless us when we're weary and provide sustenance and joy for those whose hearts are fully surrendered to him. You guys get that? Let me say that again. This word picture, what it's painting for us here in verses 1 through 3, by describing this person Melchizedek and by describing the person of Abraham and his actions, is that there is a king of righteousness. There is a king of peace who wants to bless you and me by giving us sustenance and joy in life for those of us whose life is fully and completely surrendered over to him. Now, if you're not getting that still, Abraham is you. Melchizedek is Jesus. You got that? All right. You guys doing okay? All right. Hang in there with me because now we're probably going to get a little bit more wordy. This is where this gets a little bit like, uh, okay, someone else. Can we put this in like kindergarten language? And we're going to try this morning. So before we jump into here, I want us to revisit this truth about what a priest is, okay? Um, remember, we, we already talked about this. We already saw it in Hebrews, is what the writer says is that, you know, there are priests and Jesus is the better priest. Well, that is true, but we need to, if we're going to understand the rest of this portion of Scripture, revisit this idea of priest. So what is a priest? What does the priest do? What, well, how should we understand how the writer of Hebrews is wanting us to understand that? Well, Okay, let's, let's think about that again. What does a priest do? Well, a priest was, so to speak, like a go-between, right? A priest was somebody 
that we would, we would go to as a human being who had a representation of who God is for us so that we can have kind of communication between us and God. That's what a priest would do. A priest would also, if we messed up, if we were feeling bad, if we were feeling like, man, we had a particularly morally bad week or season of sin, we would go to the priest and say, these are the sins, and will you, what the priest would do is hold up the law and say, yep, yep, you messed up on uh, one, four, eight, actually just one through ten, you messed them all up, right? And so because you messed them all up, what we're going to have to do is uh, we're going to have to take this sheep, a perfect sheep, and we're going to sacrifice it to get, to wash you clean of all these one through ten sins that you did. That's what a priest would do. He would offer sacrifices for you and God. And today we still have that. We see that in the Catholic Church. There's still priests. But even for us here this morning, we might say things like, man, I have a, a therapist who I go to, who kind of, like, I say, man, I messed up here, I'm not feeling good about this, and this person will offer, uh, you know, advice and help us through those things, or all those kind of things. We still have this way that we connect through people to get to God, all right? Still have a priestly kind of system. Now, what the author of Hebrews is going to try to do through the rest of this, he's going to help us see that the old system of us going through somebody else to get to God is antiquated, it's obsolete, and that there is a better way to meet directly with God. There's a better way to get our sins dealt with. There's a better way for us to be comforted. There's a better way for us to have direct access to God the Father and be made righteous. And that's what he's going he's gonna to do with the rest of the portion of Scripture. So let's jump into it. You guys ready? I get it. I get it, guys. All right. This is a tough chapter. All right. Give me some, give me some grace. All right. I, I need maybe a couple like, yeah, that's amazing. Even if it's not that amazing. All right. Thanks. All right. That's really helpful. Didn't feel, didn't feel like I asked for that at all. Verses 5 through 10. Uh, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descendants from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descendant from them, receives tithes from Abraham and is blessed, has blessed him who had the promises. Verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his aunt, great word, loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Okay, what is all of that saying? So it's saying, yes, there was this uh, system that was set up. And what we would do is we would pay tithes, and we would pay tithes to men. That would be you and me. We would offer sacrifices for this system so that we could then in return receive something back for us that we could say, you know, like, I pay so that this ministry of reconciliation between me and God can continue to happen through men, all right? And he's not disqualifying that. He's just saying that is what had happened. All right, you guys got that? 
Okay, now look at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Here it's starting to come home now. So we just had said, yes, this was the system. We did this to get this. And all of this happened. It was set up. And there was a priestly system. And this, you would go to this person. And what they would do is they would offer sacrifices for you because you had guilt inside. Or you committed something where you could not be made right with God. You could not attain relationship with God unless this happened. And we're acknowledging that that did happen. But what the writer of Hebrews is now saying, if that was good enough, why in the world do we need Jesus? If all of that system was perfect, why in the world did Jesus have to come, be born a babe some 2,000 years ago, Emmanuel, God with us, grow up under the, 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 the reality of this broken world, experience the same things that we did, and then in his perfect life still have to die a death and be raised three days later, which we're going to celebrate in a couple day, weeks, and, and then be victorious over sin and death. If the old priestly system was good enough, why did we need Jesus? And it's rhetorical, obviously, isn't it? Do you notice how we don't sing any songs to Moses? Doesn't that feel silly that I would even say something like that? You know, how great is our patriarch Moses? Sing with me. No, we don't do that, do we? Why don't we sing to Moses? Because Moses wasn't enough. You see, Moses didn't pay the price. For those of us who have you know, a Catholic background. I know there's a lot of us in here. There's, such, there's this beautiful song, Ave Maria. Isn't that beautiful? You ever heard it? It's sung in Latin. It is beautiful. And, you know, many, uh, we, Marianne's cousin's wedding, somebody live sang that. And that's a tough song to sing live, right? But you'll see it in movies or maybe in the Lord of the Rings kind of things when the elves, it's, it was like a, you knew it was humming. There's always this kind of like, oh, it's that kind of a song. Now, if you don't know anything about that song, it's basically the rosary being sung, but it's in Latin. And I'm not trying to step on anyone's toes here, but the reality of the words of that song are so opposite of what Hebrews chapter 7 tells us. It'll say things like, Hail Mary. Well, that's fine. We can, like, amazing. Like, the Bible, an angel comes to Mary and says, you know, blessed are you among, among women because the Son of God is going to be birthed through you. But here's what we see where this song starts to take a bent that is opposite of Hebrews chapter 7, where it says things like, pray for us, sinners. Pray for us in our time of need. Pray, pray, pray for us. Friends, the only one, the only person who we need praying for us is Jesus we don't need another intercessor. We don't need another person of a go-between between us and God because if we did, then Jesus wouldn't have had to come. 
Jesus was the once and for all. All right. Let's keep reading. Verses 12 through 17. This is going to be pretty informational here, but we'll try to explain it. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. We see this even right now, right, between the Trump presidency, and this is not a political statement, just it's the Trump presidency and the Biden administration presidency. You would say there's some differences, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. some of the teenagers are like, oh, what? You know, I don't, do we have a different president? You know? I mean, there's obviously, and what the writer of Hebrews is saying, when you get someone who's leading in the position of authority, what happens? Change comes. Change happens, doesn't it? Even even me coming and leading Southlands Chino before it was Park Place, there's a difference. I wasn't here, but I'm going to assume for those of you who were here, you're going to say, yeah, it feels different. Kelly preaches different. He has different thoughts. There's different bents. All of those things, it's different, good or bad. It just is what it is. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 13, for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with the tribe Moses, I'm sorry, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests, speaking of the tribe of Judah. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an idle, uh, indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What is it saying here? Let me try to sum this up for us. It's saying, basically, that the old Levitical system was by Moses, and in order to be a priest, you had to be born from a specific tribe in the nation of Israel, which was the tribe of Levi. But guess what? Jesus isn't under the tribe of Levi. He was born out of the tribe of who? Judah. So there's a change. He's trying to like lay more emphasis. It's a difference in the way this works. If it was based on human things, Jesus would have had to come through the tribe of Levi. All right? You guys tracking? You guys hanging in there? All right. You guys are doing so good this morning. Verse 18. Uh, is that where we are? Okay, let me catch my notes up here. Now, this is, this is, this is probably, if you don't get this this morning, I, if I could ask as your pastor this morning, this is the biggest thing I want you to get, all right? Because I think, can I just address Southland's Chino? Now, I'm not talking about the big church here, but at one of the things that I see at Southland's Chino is I think, in generally, we wrestle with trying to be moral. And then what happens is, if we don't feel good about our morality, we often tend to approach God in a way that's very unhelpful. We approach God out of um, feeling guilty. We approach God out of timidity. And we approach God saying, like, I'm worthless because I didn't hold up my end of the bargain. I would say, and, and what, am I, what am I contrasting that against? I'm actually contrasting it against a culture that would say, I can do whatever I want because God forgives me. And I can, like, do as many bad things as I want. But, it, you know, I said the prayer 
Some 20 years ago, I came up, I raised my hand. I even got baptized on Easter Sunday. And so therefore, I could just do whatever I want because Jesus will forgive me. I know that there might be a few of us in this room that kind of lean that way. And we probably all have moments where we decide, I'm going to sin and God will forgive me. But I think the general moral culture of Southlands Chino is more of this understanding of, I feel really bad. And because I didn't, I wasn't perfect, I don't have access to God the way I should have access. Does that make sense? And so what I'm wanting to read now, I, I think we need to take this so to heart because it's going to just smash that understanding. Okay, here we go. Verse 18. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. For the law made nothing perfect. For the law made nothing perfect. For the law made no thing perfect. Guess what? The law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. We need to hear that, friends. See, if, let me, let me explain it this way. Someone who wrestles with alcoholism, they know it's wrong, and they're sitting at home, and there's, they're white-knuckling it, and what they're doing is like, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to drink, and let's say they don't drink. Is that person free from the evils of alcoholism? I'd say no. All that they have done in that moment is for their body, yes, in a good way, have made a good decision. But what has mastered their will is still overlording on top of them. And so what the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage us this morning, Southlands Chino, as your pastor, I'm saying, hey, I want to identify this in our church. That when we feel morally good or morally bad, that will depend on how we approach God. And we feel morally superior when we do good things. That is not what Hebrews chapter 7 is trying to tell us because the law makes nothing perfect. The law cannot set you free. The law, all the law can do is show you, hey, look what you did bad. By the way, Here's the standard. You did it wrong. Do we need the law? Absolutely. That's how we know stuff is good and stuff is bad. But the law cannot come to you and say, while I am on one hand going to show you right and wrong, I am also going to empower you to keep it. Only Jesus Christ can both show you your sin on one hand and on the other side say, now that you understand you cannot keep this law, I am going to keep it 
for you perfectly. And when you are struggling in your walk to follow me and to do as I say and to do as I do, what I'm going to do in that moment when you call on me, I'm going to give you bread and wine in this moment. And I'm going to give you sustenance and joy in order for you to keep the law. Because the law itself cannot save you. If the law could save us, friends, we wouldn't need Jesus. Anybody here ever perfectly keep the law? Nobody. Nobody does. No matter how good your intentions. My kids' generation, they, they view maturity as good intentions. As passion. Right? Right? Well, if I'm very sincere, that means I'm mature. Actually, friends, those of us who are mature are those who understand that whether I was sincere or not, I put my hope and my trust in Jesus because I don't have enough sincerity in my bones to be able to keep this law. No matter how hard I try, the law has made nothing perfect. Please hear that. Southlands, Chino. Am I saying, let's just do whatever we want? Hey, let's be a church that's just free grace. Here's a little grace for you, and a little grace for you. Like Rip Van, what's that guy? I don't know. Anyways. Oprah? You get gray. Hey! Okay. I don't, I don't know if you noticed this, but the Bible, the, the very Bible, the scripture that we hold as holy, said that the law is useless when it comes to making us righteous. It says that. Now, if perfection, no, for, I don't know where I'm at. Here it is, 18. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. All right. Let's move on because we're almost done. Verses, where are we? 20 through 25. And it's just going to show us how useless the law is in trying to make us righteous. Verse 20. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of our better covenant. What is the writer saying here? He's saying the old guys didn't take, the old system, they didn't even have to oath. Why? Because this system wasn't meant to be permanent. But under Jesus, he takes an oath. Why? Because under Jesus, it's permanent. Forever. Forever, as Sandlot would say. First, keep reading. The 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he who holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost. 
those who draw near to God, just like Abraham drew near to Melchizedek. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. What is this saying here? Well, there was a lot of priests. Why? Because priests are human. And what do humans do? They get old, and then what happens? They die. So, if, I mean, here's the thing. Not even my wife, not even Marianne will be there for me forever. Or can she be there for me for every single situation? When I first moved here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be vulnerable for a moment, okay? Is that all right? Just, when I first moved here, Alan and the rest of the Southlands eldership team said, why don't you come out to California? We were in Texas at the time. And so why don't you sit with the eldership team and do, a, so to speak, like an interview, right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure, right? Was that interview grueling? No, it was, it was like a bunch of guys and girls, the team sitting, hey, what do you think about this? We want to get to know you, this, and yeah, that feels good. I felt so terrible <laughs> in my performance, so to speak. After that time, I was like, what in the world am I doing? I am, I am trash. I have zero skill. I mean, just all of these thoughts were running through my mind. And we were staying at a friend's house, Nick Saltis's house. He was hosting us. We were staying in their daughter's bed. Thank God, okay, for, or bless them. You know, it was both this full-size bed. And Marianne is laying close to me at night. I mean, as close as you can get in a full-size bed. And I felt so alone. I felt so alienated. And it wasn't until I think the grace of God coming through the presence of the Holy Spirit that said, Kelly, you probably should pray. And you should probably worship right now. So what did I do? In my mind, I started singing, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And it was like all of a sudden, the presence of God came over me. And it was like as if the enemy had been bombarding me and bombarding me and bombarding me. And no matter how close I was to my wife, it wasn't anything in comparison to the presence of Jesus in that moment that gave me truth to be able to see what God was doing. See, I love how this talks about intercession, how Jesus makes intercession for us. Think about Peter, how Jesus comes to Peter and says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. What? Yeah, yep, actually, what's going to happen is before this rooster cock-a-doodle-doos three times, you're going to deny me. And he's like, no way, no way. That would never happen, Lord. Actually, it is going to happen, but guess what, Peter? I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you, Peter. I've prayed that the enemy won't overcome, that the guilt that you're going to feel in that moment won't crush you. And I've prayed to the one who hears my prayers, who answers my prayers. I pray to the one who's faithful. And this says, the priesthood, that old system, these guys dying away, this old covenant that you've held on to, that your hope in the law, it won't pray for you. It won't give you power in the moment where you're feeling distressed and alienated. It won't set you free from your guilt where you're own condemning heart will tell you what feel 
feels, it might be true, but it'll compound these truths to crush you. It won't set you free. Only Jesus, the better way, will do that. Let's end with some beautiful truths. He tells us here in chapter 7, verse 26 through 28. Let's finish it. For it was indeed fitting. Wow. Understatement. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Look at these adjectives. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. What are we left with this morning? Honestly, guys, we're left with two options. We're left with two options. We can put our hope and our trust and our faith in the traditions and the old ways that we have found success in alleviating our guilt through our moral behavior only to come back and bite us in the butt again to say you're not enough. You're not enough. This will never satisfy. This will never satisfy. You'll never be enough. You'll never, have, you'll never find victory over this. You are not enough. Or we can be and listen and heed the word of the author of Hebrews who's writing to a church very similar, similar to us. A, a group of people who grew up with traditions that seemed to work in the past but won't work anymore. He's writing to a group of people saying, the old way is obsolete and here's the proof because if it worked, you'd be set free. There's a new way. There's a better way, and that's through Jesus and Jesus alone. And so we're left with two options. We can either decide to continue, try to placate to the law, and say, I feel good about myself when I keep the law. I'm going to keep doing that to find right standing with God, only to find ourselves discouraged and dismayed. Or we can say, I'm going to let go of those things. I'm going to let go of my moralism. I'm going to let go of my, my arrogance thinking somehow I am good enough to keep this. And I'm going to lay that to the side. And even when my own condemning heart says, you hypocrite, I'm going to focus my eyes on the one who now ever lives to make intercession for me at this very moment when I do mess up. He's not pleading with the Father. What he's saying is, look at my scars. I've paid the price. I've already done the work. They are now perfect because of my perfect life. I'm going to give it to them. Friends, let's make that choice. Let's put our hope in that perfect work. 
no matter what you're struggling with today. And I get that I'm stepping on toes, particularly in the area of some of us that grew up with traditions that say, if you know, what I love, and I'm just going to end here. I promise I'm ending because we're about to do this right now. Someone this week, I overheard a story who took communion for the first time out of freedom. This person said, I usually don't do it because I feel like I have to be right with God before I can take communion. See, it works the other way around. Communion, partaking in communion, it is what makes you perfect. It's not being perfect before I go to the table. It's me be going to the table in spite of my imperfections that makes me perfect. Because every time that I submit my heart in taking the bread and taking the juice, I am saying, Jesus, you are the only thing that can make me right. I, no matter, if I've lived 20 straight years without committing one sin, I'm still going to go up to this table and be imperfect because of that one moment before those 20 years and I've just negated the whole thing the only way the only way is through Jesus the better way better than our old systems will you stand with me this morning